Hey, thanks for downloading. Just real quick before we get to the episode this week, I might need to play an ad here. If you do, you know, you, sometimes you do hear an ad, sometimes you don't. Depends on where you are, how you downloaded it, how many ads you've been served. Did listening to this show, you don't get sent one all the time. You might get sent one all the time. Sometimes you will definitely hear one, sometimes you won't definitely hear one. But um, if you do, thanks, because I'll have to pay Rachel and Andy who help me make this show. I love to pay, and Brie. Um, I pay them all, and we all make this show together. So if you hear an ad, thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Children who study music at a young age, are up to 30% better at all other subjects, academically and socially. I mean, all, all private schools have music teachers, but unfortunately in our public system, music is, isn't regarded as important. So over 70% of the public schools do not have a music teacher anymore. They don't have PE teachers either, a lot of them. But pretty retrograde if they're not using their brain or their bodies, but there is guaranteed research that music is it's a no-brainer in terms of if you want to have a develop a child teach them music they don't have to become musicians they might even give it up after a few years but the process of learning and all the things it does imagination like i'm saying and the creativity of it the teamwork the discipline what it can do for the brain what it can do in terms of solace comfort joy i would urge everybody to try and get their child to learn a musical instrument that is musician, songwriter, and I guess default proxy uncle for an entire generation of Australians, Don Spencer. And this is Better Than Yesterday. Hello and welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. Uh, this is uh, a bi-weekly podcast that hopes to help you make today a little bit better than yesterday. Twice a week, I'm here. Mondays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. And that's it. We're just here to try to help you make today better than yesterday. If something you hear on the show, 
will make a difference. That's the guarantee of the gig. There's over 500 episodes, 500, over 550 episodes. So scroll on. We've been here since 2013. So scroll on back and have a listen to whatever you want to dig into. Thank you so much for the great feedback about Friday's show on resentment. Very, very grateful that resonated with a number of you. Thanks. It's nice to not feel alone on that kind of thing. If you do want to get in touch with me, super easy. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Bit of a surprise today. If you recall, the John Safran conversation from a couple of weeks back was a part of the the great revelation of the lost SD card of 2020. Well, there was another interview or two on that lost SD card of 2020. Uh, There's a number of them, actually. And I'm grateful to bring one of them to you today, Uh, which is kind of good because at the moment... Look, every now and again, I know about you, but every now and again, I just, I actually just need a break from COVID news, nuclear submarine news, Tony Abbott in China news, Matt Canavan, coal mining news. I just need to go, what's, just give me an hour off, man. Just give me an hour off. So hopefully this one will help you. It does get a bit heavy at some points, this one today, but hopefully it'll give you a bit of a break. So bear in mind that this conversation was recorded, I think this is like the last one that I did when I was still recording at the Batuta Advocate Studios before the pandemic shut everything down. This was the last one that I did there, and it was a, the part of the SD card that used to come with me that got lost in a camera bag and then got found in a camera bag. And when I found it, by the time I found this SD card, some of the conversations in there were perhaps you know, weren't really touching on what the country was going through at the moment. But I think now is a really good time to revisit this because Don Spencer is, without a doubt, a legendary Australian, all right, regardless of what work he's doing. He's a fantastic human being. For 28 years, he hosted Play School. I think he's the only person to have ever hosted Play School in the UK and in Australia. I can't tell you how many records he's made, but he's written, produced, recorded so many gold records, platinum records, albums for kids, so many, so many records. He also, very importantly, in 2002, founded the Australian Children's Music Foundation, which is an extraordinary place. They are a not-for-profit organisation that uses music to inspire and enrich the lives of Australian kids, uh, particularly those uh, Indigenous and First Nations kids and others from disadvantaged backgrounds. They provide free tuition, uh, free instruments, and have programs in every state in Australia, including in juvenile detention centres, disadvantaged schools, and in in cities and remote areas and, and heaps of Indigenous communities. And they also, every year, they conduct the ACMF National Songwriting Competition, which is open now. There's over $20,000 in prizes, and it's open to all school-aged children and and young Australians. He is a a great bloke, and this conversation really does centre on the power of music to not only develop brains, but also heal any kind of trauma. I definitely know. I can picture a moment where I was swept up in and and just removed from a moment of in- incredible joy and beauty with my wife and I was just sucked into this vortex of horrid, horrid, horrid anxiety. And I, no- I was like, I'm noticing this. And so I-, I popped on the little Bluetooth speaker and I put on a couple of Motown songs and I literally just danced and sang even though I was feeling horror in my body. And within two songs, I had danced and sang those horrible feelings out of my body. And uh, Audrey giggled because I danced like a white man at a wedding. So I know personally the incredible healing power of music, and I'm sure you do too. And Don goes a lot into speaking about how you don't need to be a virtuoso to get the benefit of music, just like you don't need to be an Olympian to get the benefit of running, you know? 
this conversation, because of the kind of work that the ACMF does, this conversation does dip towards the topics of suicide and self-harm. So if that is something of concern to you, please be sure to reach out to support services in your area. You can try Lifeline on 13 11 14 or wherever you're listening in the world. Do reach out because it's important to have conversations about this sort of stuff. You can support Don uh, by donating at acmf.com.au. It's a fantastic chat. I'm so grateful I can finally bring it to you. Enjoy this beautiful sit-down and chat with the legendary Don Spencer. Hello, Don. How are you? I'm okay, and I'm not going to lie, and I'm sure you get this a lot. It is kind of like I'm sitting down to chat with my uncle who I've never met because <laughs> I spent so much time with you, but you didn't know that. Oh, okay. Well, it's uh, good to see you, mate. Do people, do people say that when they meet you in the street? Yeah. I don't think a week goes by where somebody doesn't stop me and talk about the music or play school or something yeah. or other. It's all, all very lovely. Get some terrific, pleasant comments. At least... Uh, they're always nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were, you know, you were for generations of kids, what, 28 years on Australian play school? I did 30 years on a play yeah, school. Yeah, 30 yeah. years. So that's, that's, goodness, that's a lot of generations of kids. It's a lot, of, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It uh, was a wonderful program to do. I mean, I can say that I didn't write the program. I just wrote a lot of music for it, but I yeah. was just one of the uh, presenters, but. No, it's really lovely and uh, curious thing. I way back, oh, I, I once had a Tonight Show, you know, in the days when we wore dinner suit and all that yeah, stuff, you did. and had all the top guests, you know, coming. And the producer said, "Look, you, you're going to have to give up that kids stuff because, you know, this is a sophisticated show, and you know, I had a little trio and and singing, but or oh, interviewing people." And I said, "No, I'm not giving up the kids show." He says, "Look." It, this morning you were an elephant. Yesterday you were a balloon. I said, yeah, so what? He says, well, you, how can you do an adult sophisticated show? I said, I bet you I'm doing that kid stuff long after this show's forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, nobody ever remembers that show. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I read up about that and I, I saw that you'd, you'd done the, the big proper like tonight show, the talk show with every yeah. guest that could be named. Yeah, no. Uh, I, came yeah. on, they sat across from you and. Yeah, it was great. I met some wonderful people doing that. But it was just, I started out as a songwriter. And having said that, I mean, I didn't do music as a child, but. In my travels, I stumbled across a guy who became famous later and who was a songwriter when I was hitchhiking through Africa and ran out of money in Nairobi. And there was a guy playing rugby there and hockey and loved my sport. Good way to meet people too when you're in foreign places. And uh, one of the guys in the rugby team said, come down, I'm singing at the local coffee bar. And it was just coffee in those days, nothing else. And uh, he sang a couple of covers like Buddy Holly and this, and then he did a song. He said, I, I wrote this myself. He's playing a 12-string guitar, and I went, wow, that's magic. I've been writing terrible doggerel poems on my travels and everything. So, But not for anybody else, just rather than bore my mother or my sister to death with boring letters, I'd put them all in rhyme, but terrible stuff. Anyhow, I wrote a couple of words and said, would you put it to music? And he did. And, uh, and I thought, maybe that's what I'll do. So... Took me another couple of years, but I taught myself guitar, worked on a ship around Indonesia and everywhere, and anyhow, I became a songwriter. But the point was that the guy was Roger Whittaker. I don't know if you remember Roger Whittaker, but he became a very famous singer worldwide. 
and uh, that's how I started. Well, there's two incredible things there that I would I would like to talk to you about. Firstly, how did you how did you end up in Africa, Don? Uh, well, you know, uh, kind of a tough childhood. I was like, yeah, lovely mother and my brother and sister. We were close, but things were pretty tough on my mum and us. But when I got to 18, I did my national service and said, I want to go overseas. And we had no money. And of course, it's days before, no credit cards, no telephones. We didn't have, we didn't have a telephone in the house or, to be honest, we didn't have running hot water either, but that's all where, right. Where was this? I, I grew up in uh, Tamworth, but it's Tamworth's 20 times bigger now. When I was a kid, yeah, it was still but, dirt roads. and Yeah. But, you know, it's a nice little town, but I just wanted to get out. So I just saved up, did three jobs and saved up, get enough money to get on a ship to get me to Greece and then... I don't bore you with all this, but just no, it's no, it's not like, boring at all. This kind of adventure is. I love this stuff. So you get to Greece. I mean, you're absolutely right. Like now, you know, your kids go overseas, and you expect text from the airport. You text when they get there. They yeah. text when they get to you know in the cab. They text when they get to the Airbnb. You know, you've got five updates in an hour, and they're on the other side of the planet. Yeah, I didn't talk to my mother or my sister for four years. I couldn't. We didn't have a telephone, and in those days, I couldn't afford it anyhow, and no credit card. So every Every time I ran out of money, I had to work. So I, I washed dishes and worked in bars and did any sort of job. Worked in Sweden for four months washing dishes and it was great fun, good. So anyhow, eventually my travels took me all the way around. I then went through Africa. and Just going on adventures? You were like 19, 20 years old? Yeah, I was uh, 20 on my own. I just, you know, I was down the White Nile and got on this ship. I was the only white guy on it. <laughs> But I just got there, you know, ran out of money in Nairobi. What's it like when you're a kid from Tamworth, right? Mm. And, I mean, Greece itself would have been an extraordinary culture shock, let alone the rest of Europe. Yeah, well, it all was a culture shock. It was, um, but it was exciting. I mean, coming from a country town, I found it very exciting. It had down times, of course, because sometimes I'd sit by a road for a couple of days before I got a lift or something. <laughs> And I got robbed in Rome the first I got to Rome, and then I had nothing, so I had to find my way back to England and work again to start again. But yeah. um, I don't know. It was good. Good fun. Do you think there was something about what you'd grown up with in Tamworth and the way you were around people and that kind of Australian small country town way of being that helped you on your travels? It could have been. I mean, I I wouldn't say I'm gregarious, but I'm not. I can be friendly, you know. I mean, yeah. people were very kind to me. I got some, you know, lovely sort of stories where people would give me a lift and then they'd take me up to their, like this is, say, in Africa, and they take me up, oh, we've got a coffee plantation, and then go up and they introduce me to the family and I say, well, I'm heading down there. And they say, oh, stay a couple of days. And I remember once doing some terrible faux pas because I didn't drink alcohol or anything at that stage. So I grew up in an alcohol-type background and my experiences with what people did, I thought, well, I will never drink. Well, I did eventually change that, right? But at that stage, I remember going to some place and there was this very oh, wonderful Italian couple, but they offered me a, a brandy. At least he said, I've got something special and bought out this incredible 80-year-old brandy and I and I couldn't, I didn't drink, but I'd heard somebody yeah, where in my travels, I said, can I have some Coke with that? You know, <laughs> and the guy's eyes nearly popped. He said, well, you don't have Coke with this sort of brandy. I, I'm sorry, I didn't know. But 
made a lot of faux pas, but uh, we got there. So what a what a great adventure! And then in in Africa, you 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 found a spot in Nairobi and and just started playing sport. Well, I, I worked for a year in Nairobi, and then uh, doing what? It was one of those sit, uh, catch twenty two situations in a lot of those countries I went to that when you get there, you can't get a visa unless you got a job, and you can't get a job unless you got a visa. So. I had to play that game very quickly because I really was down to a couple of shillings. So I went to the visa people and said, yeah, I've got a job. I haven't got it in writing yet, but if you give me the visa, they said, well, give, show us your job and we'll give you the visa. I'm shortening the story, of course. Then I went to the bottom of Government Road, which is a main road in Nairobi, and I knocked on every door. There were Indian merchants and this sort of shop and that, and I'd go up the stairs, like where your studio is here, I'd go up the stairs, knock on each door, and then eventually, I'd, just on the one day, within two hours, I knocked on a door, somebody said, come in, and I came in, and there was this formidable-looking man with glasses on his nose, but very full head of grey hair, about 60 years old or something, and I'm 20, and he says, what do you want? And I said, I want a job. He says, what do you do? And I said, well, what do you do? He said, I sell national cash registers. I said, do you know, that's exactly what I'd love to do. And he just laughed. He said, do you think you could? I said, of course I could. Yeah. So he gave me a job. And it worked like a treat. It was fabulous. And I had a, a territory of Uganda, Tanganyika, all that stuff. And uh, I worked there for a year. And then when I was ready to go, he said, you can stay, I'll give you a job. Take over the business when you get a bit older. And I went, no, no. Travel bug was in me. I said, I got to go. So I had to get down to South Africa. My brother was engaged to a South African girl. So I was trying to find, get my way down there for their wedding. So it took me another few months to get down there. Yeah. There's something to be said. You know, obviously, we want to make sure that our kids do the best. We want to be sure that we're there for them. We want to be sure that they don't fall. Yet there's something to be said for if I don't work, I won't eat. That's right. And that does kind of light a fire under you and make you yeah. kind of drive a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. Uh, it, it. It was a good thing because I'd always, you know, had to work when I was a kid too because, you know, it were always school holidays, work on farms. And my mother was a child from 13 children from a small farm in Kalua, so horses and all that stuff, but no money. But, uh, no, I think it's the yeah, ethic. If I didn't work, I was going to going to starve. I had nobody to call on. I couldn't phone anyone. No credit cards in those days. Like, no. you couldn't just say, I'll oh, put on a credit card. You had to get by with what you had. So it's a pretty good incentive to keep working. <laughs> and that, I'm guessing that work ethic stuck with you over the years? Yeah. Yeah, it always has. I've always, uh, it's just kind of a natural thing. I, boy, it, it showbiz, you know what it's like. It's up and down. And that's one of the reasons I did the interview programs. I was a songwriter. Then eventually I had to demonstrate my songs, but I always had about five different hats in showbiz. I'd be interviewing, I'd be writing songs, I'd be doing children's songs, I might, might be acting in series. I did a lot of acting series. Uh, but my love was always just writing and then I was forced to sing to demonstrate my songs and then eventually I started recording and all that stuff. And I did do my first singing gig, I think, in uh, South Africa where I was lucky to get in because when I went down Africa... I got to the border of Africa and Lorenzo Marx, so Mozambique, and the uh, entry form to South Africa, they, it had uh, white, coloured or black. You had to put on your entry visa. And, of course, I'd been living in Nairobi, which is multicultural and 
had an Indian girlfriend who just loved it. And I got down and when I said race, I put four forty yards hurdles. And <laughs> <laughs> they they were not amused. <laughs> they wouldn't let me in. I, I got stuck in Lorenzo Marks. And uh, man, it was uh, no, yeah, no way you're coming in. They smart ass. And uh, my brother's fiance's mother had to post a bond for me to go to South Africa. And I stayed in South Africa for a year. And every Friday, I had to report to the South African police like I was on parole. Every Friday, I was in South Africa, no matter where I went, Cape Town or whatever. But I worked in Durban for most of the time, for 10, 11 months. So. It was fun. My goodness. <laughs> 440 yards <laughs> to, to the apartheid border guy, Don. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, the South African police had no sense of humor. No, I think that's quite well documented. <laughs> weren't a chirpy bunch. Oh, my goodness. What a time to, to be there and what a way to experience not only the multiculturalism of what, yeah. what Africa has to offer, but then the opposite of that. Yeah. To then see what humans can be if things don't go great. Yeah. You know, yeah. and to be seeing that and then have exposure and then understand, okay, well, there are some things in life that we can work towards and things that in life we can work away from. Mm. This might be one of them. <laughs> yeah. No, no. It, it was, it, it was very, they watched me. I, uh, my brother and I attended an anti apartheid rally because a lot of people in South Africa did not agree with it, obviously. It wasn't, it was just a government thing, but a lot of people were dead against it. And uh, I went to run of that rally, but they, I was, you know, brought up, they said, do you want to this rally? I said, well, I didn't do anything. I just standing there, you know, I, mean, I didn't want to get kicked out, but I, I, they didn't do anything more about it. But uh, I wasn't a political animal or anything. It was just a natural thing. It was, it was obviously wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, so what am I going to say? I, th I think we're getting to that point Not now. Not that I was even a good hurdler, of course. <laughs> <laughs> But I think I think we're getting to that point now, Don. I think certainly when it comes to like climate policy, you know, there's there's people who are you know very very active politically, and people who yeah. will take to the streets all the time. And then there's kind of the general population who just kind of get about and know when things are right and wrong. And you can see with the same sex marriage vote, most yeah. of Australia went, of course. Yeah. And you know, there we are, sixty four percent of people went, mm. yeah, way you go. That's right. And I think we're getting to that point now where most of Australia's like, come on, man. We know what the right thing to do is. Yeah, it's time to do it. Yeah, uh, and I certainly feel that we're getting towards that point where you'll start to see just more and more just average people. <laughs> well, yeah, hopefully united as well. I hope. Good lord, I, <laughs> I, I saw a few divisions I, happening that you'd think are unnecessary. You know. Yeah, I concur. You know. Yeah, you know, it, it's just that we can have different points of view and not necessarily fight about it, you know, I mean, because generally speaking, we can't all think the same. So, no. you know, I'm not talking about racism. That's obviously what you're definitely totally wrong. But sometimes people have an opinion about this and that. And, and instead of having, oh, really, let it go, some people find it offensive if you don't agree with them. And that's not the way to go. No, that's, you know, that's not that's not humanity, though. Otherwise, no. we'd be very boring if we all like the same we thing. We'd be pretty boring if everybody thought exactly the same on everything, yeah. And isn't it great joy in life? Uh, and sometimes it's difficult to do it in public because you don't like to, you know, you have so much of your identity attached to a particular way of belief. But isn't it a great joy in life to discover new things and go, oh, I never thought about that before. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. But that's the other, exactly. The point is, do you listen? And if you listen to somebody and they've got a counter-argument, then you listen to it and take it on board. Don't just have this dogged barrier that you 
won't even hear another point of view, but that's just being reasonable, and, yeah. which is all we need. When you got to the, it sounds like when you got to the UK, things started to really kick off music-wise for you. Yeah, Did, well, not, that feel not, good? not immediately. I, I taught myself guitar while I was working on a ship as a homes and from Germany to Indonesia, and there was nothing to do on the ship. There was only a handful of What kind of ship was seamen. it? It was a motor vessel built for the Indonesian coastal trade, Java, Sumatra, just for local trading. But it was built in Germany and Poland as part of uh, international support for Indonesia. So they built it there and donated it, but the ship had to be painted and outfitted on the way out there. And I knew nothing about ships except how to sit on them and look at the water. But I... I was desperate to get home to Australia to see my mother and my grandmother and my sister. My brother was all overseas. I'd met up with him. But I went to the Siemens Mission in Southampton, visiting somebody. And uh, while I was there, I was just in my ordinary thing. And they, they said over the tannoy, if there's a seaman in the building who can leave within an hour, there's a vacancy to go from Germany to Jakarta and Siemens law is that you get repatriated to your home country when it finishes. So that meant if I got to Indonesia, they would have to put me into Australia. So uh, I told a little fib and didn't actually fib. I just walked up and said, well, I'm ready to go. And they said, well, where are your papers? And I said, well, they're in London. I just came down to visit a friend. So I went, I went over to Germany. It's absolutely... <laughs> Hand on a Bible, mate. I got to Hamburg and they go, Hoverty <laughs> here, there, and they'd show me, take me up the, a bridge and there's, a, you know, the, the instruments and the radar and they say, no, it's different to what I've seen before, but I'm sure I can do it. <laughs> and this is it, on the 31st of January and they, uh, they sent me downstairs. It was freezing. I only had my gabardine coat from London and no, nothing. And uh, when the ship was ready to sail at 3 a.m., they came down and grabbed me. The other, there were two Polish seamen and two German able seamen, and I was the fifth unable seaman, I would have called myself. And uh, they whipped me upstairs to help cast off. Well, they didn't know how to do it, and they knew I didn't. Captions, and they sent me back to my cabin. And then they took me upstairs to the captain. Nobody could speak English except the captain. They just dragged me up, and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I have to get home to Australia. And he said, well, I'm going to have to put you off in Antwerp. We're having one stop before we go down to the Suez Canal. And I said, well, can't you teach me how to see the ship? And I, I'm bright. I promise you I can teach you. He said, no, no. Go down and take watch, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. on the 1st of February then. Uh, and it was freezing to death. And they put me down on the front deck. And at 7.30 in the morning... Somebody came and grabbed me, took me upstairs, and the captain said, have you been down there all night? I said, yeah. He said, you were only supposed to be there for an hour. I said, oh, well, I was freezing. I was running. I was jogging all night. He said, okay, I'll give you a go. Try and wow. Teach you. So I started steering the ship, and uh, I zigzagged, and they all laughed at me for a while. But by the time we got to Antwerp, I was handling it well, and he said, okay, I'll take you to Jakarta. Then by the time we got through, I took it through the Suez Canal. The pilot let me steer it a lot of the way. They say they don't do it, but they do. And I used to park that ship like a mini. By the time I got to Harvard, I could drive it like a mini. I go, oh, what do you want to over? I can do that. Exactly. So it was easy. Don, I think we could we would all learn a lesson from 
not only your confidence, but also your honesty of like, look, I'm just willing. All right, mm. I'm 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 willing yep. to do it. Yeah, that's such a key. That's such a key to success mm. in in any you know career, but also for a boss to hear that and go, well, all right. I'd mm. rather hire someone who's who's willing yeah. than someone who or reckons they know everything and think I owe them yeah. something. Uh, that's yeah. extraordinary. Oh, uh, it's not extraordinary. I'm John, sure plenty of people don't, don't minimise it. No, no, no. Come no. on. This is the kind of stuff that we try to tell our kids about. We try to say, come on, <laughs> you know, just get, get in there, have a go, you know, just let them know that you're keen. And, oh, no, 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 yeah. you know. Oh, no. Well, that's something I've always kind of had in my head that, yeah, you can do it if you give it a go. Yeah. But I was very diligent when I, <laughs> I was working at it. Oh, no, I don't doubt. Yeah, I don't, I mean, there's no substitute for, no, for no. flight time. You've no, got no. to get the hours in. Yeah. You absolutely have to. Yeah. yeah. So you're on, you're on board this ship. You're playing guitar. Badly. <laughs> we all start badly. That's fine. <laughs> we pick up the guitar and we think, I'm going to be Oasis, you know? Yep. I'm, oh, I'm going to be Powderfinger. By this weekend, I'll be playing a gig at the beer garden. Yep. No. <laughs> it's going to be right. terrible for a long time. Exactly. Yeah. And you just got to be okay with that. you just yeah. got to got to enjoy the process of, yeah. of learning how to yeah. do it. In the discovery of of music and when you, mm. as your success started to come with the songwriting, with the touring, with performing, what was it about music that you thought, this is it, this is the thing? Oh, music's just always been my comfort. Even as a child, I wasn't learning music, but I was listening and uh, I don't know, when things went wrong at home or there was some thing going, I'd always hide away and listen to music hop up on the roof or, or whatever. But a lot of it was classical, Tchaikovsky and Bach and things. But, you know, we weren't a musical family such, such, not at all. But music was always a comfort. Honestly, I only had one ambition. I thought if I get one song published. I grew up in that era. We didn't have television. So I grew up before television in the bush. Didn't come to 56 Olympics for the country, but it didn't get to the... My country turned to about 70 or something. But anyway, I was gone by then. I just always um, felt that if I had one song published, I'd die happy because I had never had any ambition to be in music when I left Australia. I just knew that I didn't. When I left school, I did accountancy for a couple of years and thought, i got to get out. I don't know what I want to do, but I just I want to see the world. And uh, then when the music thing came, I thought, oh, my God, how beautiful. Roger wrote these songs and uh, put a couple of mine to music. I thought, if I could get a song published, that would be good. Then I'll work out what I'm going to do with my life. But luckily, it took a year or so before I sold a song. And I sold a song and I was then asked to demonstrate at that recording session at Abbey Road where the Beatles recorded and everything. And I recorded another song as, as well as mine. And that song became a, a big hit because it was a television theme. And uh, I was kind of off, but it didn't, I don't know, well, I'll tell you briefly. I left some songs with people and did this demo and figured, that's it, I'm going to go to Canada now. So I went to Canada with my brother and spent a year in Toronto. And then I wrote a letter back and said to the guy who was managing me, did anything ever happen to my songs? And he said, we've been looking for you for five months, you're in the hit parade, come back tomorrow. And uh, I hopped on a plane and then uh, within... The day I was on a pop tour, I didn't have the faintest idea what I was doing, but I just followed the rest of them. They took me to Oxford Street, Charkham's, put me in a blue mohair suit. They wore suits in those days still. And uh, 
I was on tour, and then before I know it, I was touring with the Rolling Stones, and I did several tours of the Stones and the Hollies, the Four Seasons, and, you know, it was uh, another world for me, hoping they wouldn't find out I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> okay, but so I still do that, actually. Tell me, okay, so tell me about that, because, you know, I'm sure you're not alone. There's many people listening that feel that. I most certainly felt that. I used to think when, when things first really started to kick off with me, I thought any minute, a cab's going to roll up mm. and go, uh, sorry, mate. No, it's um, it's Aaron Ginsberg that has your career. You call people uh, and ask them if they're happy with their power company yeah. uh, at a call centre. Come on, swapsies. Oopsie, we made a mistake. Yeah. And that's what I felt for, for years. I felt that. Yes. Then I always thought someone's going to tap me on the shoulder and say, yep, you don't know what you're doing, do you? But you kind of just do learn as you go. <laughs> Does that feeling, is that feeling still with you? Uh, you know, I'm still, I do envy the people who write songs and they say, walk in and say to their, doesn't matter to their family or the, somebody else should want to sing it and go, look, I've got a fantastic song for you, you've got to listen to this. It's it. I, I am always apprehensive the moment I've got a new song, no matter who I'm playing it to, I go, oh, I like it, but I don't know if they do, you know, so it's hard to be objective about it. Music. Surely your body of work has proven that, you know, Don, you've probably got this. <laughs> uh, well, I've been lucky enough to write for some good people and I've certainly had a few hundred songs published, so I've been lucky there, you know. <laughs> What's your I was on tour with the Rolling Stones story? Yeah, I could write a few stories there, all right? Uh, it, I, look, you could not believe what it was like because the hysteria, the Beatles were the ones and then the Stones, you know, came along very shortly after. But... The fan behaviour with the Stones was different to the Beatles. It was out of hand, crazy. Everywhere we went, there were thousands upon thousands of kids. And I did several tours with them. But they weren't, this was long before the stadium shows and all that. So we worked in venues with 500 people and six, like the local cinema, the local town hall. And we do two shows a day. So all around England and Britain, it was was really seeing people for real because they're that close. But the hysteria and everything was phenomenal. We The hotel, you could have three, 4,000 kids outside chanting all night, you know. Not we want Don Spencer, we want the Stones, but I just happened to be on the tour. <laughs> so if you're on the tour, they'd want a journey out like they do. Yeah. I don't know. You mentioned Tannoy before, which is a, 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 an old way of amplifying the human voice. It was a, mm. a, a, a nasty-sounding steel speaker. It was horrible. Awful-sounding things. But I'm guessing PA technology must have struggled to get over the screaming of these in these venues. Oh, yeah, no, that they actually started screaming when the show opened, and they would scream all the way through your your, your music. They, you know, they they would like you because I had a couple of songs that you know they knew. But they were, when I did the first tour, it was just everybody was separate. But the Stones tour, which followed straight on, were hysteria and. You walk out and they're just screaming. And then I started this little joke with them because they so wanted the stones. I would walk out and I'd sing a song and talk and then I'd walk out and get a placard and I'd go, on it would say, the Rolling Stones, and they'd all scream, go mad. <laughs> then I'd walk back from the other side of the stage and I'd go, will not be appearing, and they go, they're like rioting, will not be appearing. Then I grab a ball on the other side for another half hour. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and I'd play this sort of, because they were just screaming and it was just like up and down. It was like, 
Instead of getting all going, yeah, 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 it was like, here's the sign. The Rolling Stones, yeah, will not be appearing. Ah, for another half hour. All right, can you hang on? That's <laughs> <laughs> so fun. Uh, uh, fun. So much fun. To at least, fun. you know, to have a, have a gag with the crowd. Like, Yeah, no, they, it was good fun. And the guys were good. I, I uh, Particularly Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman, they used to live in Surrey, uh, and I lived in Surrey too. So whenever we were near Surrey, we'd break off from the main tour and grab a night at home and go and have an omelette or something, you know. But it was good, um, incredible experience for somebody who never thought they'd even be in the business. So... No it doubt. Wonderful. It was really wonderful. And I, I did have the privilege of working with some astonishing people. It seems, though, that, you know, if that was a thing that really made your heart sing, you would have, you know, followed that. Or if The Tonight Show was a thing that made your heart sing, it, you really followed that. But it seems that the kids' music was a thing that really clicked with you. Yeah. What was it about that, Don? Oh, well, I know it's like to be an unhappy child. And music was such a comfort. And my foundation that I started and... 30 years before I started the foundation, I started doing children's television and children's music because I just know what it meant to me. And I knew that children relate to music from the moment they're born, you know, and uh, not an academic, but I just know from personal experience and it's just been proven over the years that music's very, you know, it's a wonderful no-brainer to introduce into children's lives and it's a positive, it's joy. And in the case of where we work with disadvantaged kids and kids who have been traumatised, like we will be working with the bushfire kids as we did in 2009 in Victoria, worked for three years in those areas where they had that. Kids need joy and they need hope and music does that and a lot more. So um, that's the motivation of that. And it's uh, I didn't mean to start a foundation to begin with. I just went to a female juvenile justice centre and within a matter of weeks virtually changed the whole ethos of that place because music gave them something joyful to do and something where they could all work together and crossed all the barriers. They forgot who he was or where they came from or what their colour they were. They were just, they worked together. You know, it's a great thing. And music's creativity, it's imagination and they're vital things we all need if we're going to change our circumstances or make a difference you need creativity and imagination and uh, so uh, that's what I do it's just fascinating to me that it's just a it's a form of communication that is you know I'm I'm speaking to you right now but mm. if I was to sing what I'm saying to you Don it sudden somehow changes my message to you whether I sing to you in a major yeah. key or a minor key or something like that yes. it's still words yes. it's just sound pressure leaving my mouth and atoms hitting each other through the air and then hitting yeah. your eardrums yeah. but there's just something about it and the rhythm yeah it's also the best way to teach kids how to speak if you want to know if talking about literacy and numeracy your kids learn better through songs than they do through talking is that why i i still remember the sesame street one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve that's right <laughs> you learn those songs you know I love it because we've got two at home right. and uh, he's great, she's great. You know, every night when she's doing her homework, we can hear her singing along to her songs on her on, yeah. her, on her radio. It's just the best. <laughs> but you just, you love your music, I know that. Yeah. 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 It's been a bit, it's, it's my life, you know. my yeah. I think mum found me back in the olden days when there was a test pattern on the telly for most of the day. Mum found me conducting the orchestra Beautiful. at yeah. four. Yeah. 
That's I right. knew what a conductor was yeah. because my father was a uh, – we had a spinet in our house, which is oh, a, a single wow. manual harpsichord. All right, so that'll give you a clue of who my dad was. He was just so into Baroque music oh, and wow. would yeah. take us to chamber orchestras all the time. And when other kids would go through their parents' record collections and they would play songs from the – they would find a Beatles record or, mm. a, or a Led Zeppelin record or an ABBA record. Um, when I was learning how to use the hi-fi as a little kid, it was Stravinsky, it was Miles Davis, it was Stockhausen, like weird German electronic. Yeah. That, yeah. But that's that was music yeah. as far as I knew. Well, I didn't is. know what pop music was for years. Yeah. You know, and that's what I got brought up with. And yeah. there was just something about it, man. There was just something, and particularly as what you mentioned before, and certainly when I was playing in bands, it was the moment when we were all on stage together and something unspoken would happen. And then all five or in the country band, I was in 10 of us. Mm -hmm. We all move in the same direction at yeah. the same time because it just felt like the right thing to do. And then yeah. we all look at across at each other and go, yes. <laughs> it's a good feeling, isn't it? And it's that yeah, that no. thing, yeah, no. you know. It is, yeah, it's a great feeling, yeah. It's that thing, that communication between another human being that is nonverbal, mm. can only be with instruments. And it's just something where you... I'm just trying to put it into words for the first time. You feel, not only do you feel seen and acknowledged by this other person, but you feel that the two of you are in uh, in harmony, in empathy, in, in, in moving in the same direction. And it gives you a sense of, it's not just me. I'm not alone. No. I think that's the only way I could describe it. Yeah. And I've never described it before. That's the first time I've tried to speak about it. No, no, it. but it's true. It, it's lovely, you know. That's why it's lovely to sit around jamming with somebody because something is just, yeah, yeah. that connection is wonderful. And it's uh, and with children who are shy or they've been abused and they're very uh, introspective or something, it's a beautiful thing when they're working with someone else. It makes them, it all adds up. It uh, brings them out. Given... And, you know, we can not talk about this if you want, Don, but you've alluded a few times to what happened to you when, when you were younger. When you do go and you meet kids who have gone through traumatic past, is it difficult for you? No, no, it's not difficult for me at all, actually, uh, because I, I mean, I've dealt with what I, I've worked my way through it. I mean, I'm an insomniac, but that's another problem. But that did start when I was a child, but... I feel an empathy for them. I, you know, I've, I've always luckily got along really well with children of all ages, you know, uh, uh, and it just feels natural. I just, I always loved doing music and the concerts for kids and writing kids songs and getting the reaction that I, that I get. It's particularly nice the older I get, the people still remember it. When you do go into and, and you, you start working with young people who are, either and with the foundation you work in some parts like you, uh, juvenile detention and things like this, when you do start working with kids like that, you're dealing with kids who, you know, you might represent to them just another person of authority. You might represent another person who's here to, you know, try and tell me what's wrong with me or try to help me. Like oh, yeah. how do you open the batting? How do you, how do you come into the room? How do you start talking to them about what you're going to do? Without it being planned, I do the same with them as I do with Young kids, I let them come to me. I just am there and say, this is what I do. If you're interested, would you like to try this? Would you like to try a song? It's not like they, this is within. It's, no, I can't write a song. I said, well, 
why don't we just sit down and try, you know, get three of us around. We'll just, I'll write a line and you try and write alongside it. Well, you know, that doesn't happen immediately, but some will be standoffish, particularly, say, in juvenile justice centres or kids have been severely damaged. But a lot of the kids are just disadvantaged and have never had opportunities and never had a chance to participate in music or pick up a in- musical instrument. But... No, it's it's a for want of a better cliche. It's a, it's a very softly, softly approach. It's just if you want to, would you like to try that? Well, I don't have to do it today. Wait till tomorrow if you like. You know, try it. But just try those notes there and see how it goes. But, I mean, there's always the odd kid who's more difficult. But we've had children, mate, who sometimes haven't spoken for six months and they'll come to the music class and won't speak for six months. This is where they teach, not when I was there, but um, these are because I've got teachers all over the place now and we work in a lot of Indigenous areas and refugee areas and language is a problem but music covers the language. But suddenly after six months of complete silence, this kid will suddenly, one of my teachers played the cello and this kid said, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. I hadn't heard him say a word for six months. And uh, it put his ear to the ground, the vibration through the floor. It was a wooden floor. It just, I could give you endless stories. Kids who, nobody could touch them except their mother. Nobody could, was allowed to touch them. Six months into the music class, I walk in, they run in, right, throw their arms around me. Hey, Don, guess I can play it in D now as well as C. Listen to this, you know. So it's uh, just let it grow, let it just kind of go organically with them. I don't say you've got to do this, this, and this, and this. It's yeah. Man, I've got, I got tears in my eyes listening to you talk about that, you know. Oh, no, a, kid, a kid that stuff. hasn't spoken in six months, my goodness, yeah. my goodness. What Absolutely. happens to a child that they don't speak for six That's, months? I mean, that's the sort of trauma that. How do you look after yourself? How do you and your teachers look? How, how do you care for yourself so you can then go back and do it the next day? I would think I would be speaking on behalf of the teachers. They are really inspired by it. Mm. I've actually had a couple of teachers who used to be suffered terribly from depression and because the depression never really goes away, but it's mm. always hanging around the black dog if it wants to get you. But... I've had a couple who've literally said it changed their whole life because they were musicians and, you know, just doing things but maybe not feeling fulfilled and, and they just have such a feeling of, of excitement and fulfilment about their uh, working with the kids and doing it that they don't get exhausted by it, they get inspired by it. So it's, uh, it's quite a common thing with the teachers. They, ooh, they're excited. They, ooh, you've got to come up here. One of them just has done something in one uh, Schools in Taiwan, you got to come up and record with the kids. We've got this great idea, and the kids have all written a song. I will tell you just a little quick digression about the power of music. We discovered accidentally that when kids were writing songs and expressing themselves, that one of the kids said this or started uh, to a reporter from the Bulletin, which is now doesn't exist, but it was a very significant periodical at the time, and said, do you love the music? And this girl said, about 15, 16 years old, she said, I love the music, and since I started writing songs, I've stopped cutting myself. And then they did more and more research, and then there was a paper presented in New York some years ago by an eminent psychiatrist from Australia spreading the word that 
rape with self-mutilation or kids cutting themselves. This is a more positive way to express themselves and it skewed a lot of kids. So I didn't know that when I started the foundation. I just knew that it was... Yeah. But that that's the sort of uh, lovely thing that you think, oh, well, there's actually something significant here now that could help more kids in other areas. Yeah, I did, I did want to ask about that. I mean, I'm sure there's, pe- there's plenty of people listening who, you know, they've, they've got kids and, you know, the kid will come home with a recorder. I don't know why we make kids play no, recorders. It's no, an infernal no. instrument. There are a lot of instruments one would, would prefer rather than a recorder. <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> it's not long if you figure out if you blow hard enough, you get the harmonic and that will, you know, that will get everyone's attention and that's all you really want to do. When, yeah. You know, it's like a woodwind drum kit. It's, it's so offensive. <laughs> um, but what does it do for your brain's development when you start on music when you're young? Do you know what? There is research I could show you, I could send to you if you're interested. Oh, there's, very. This is what I'm asking the question, yeah. There's phenomenal research has come out, particularly in the last 10, like 8 to 10 years, that, Playing music is the one activity that uses 100% of the brain, both sides of the brain. The other thing is that they say that children, and there's lots of research on this, and that children who study music at a young age are up to 30% better at all other subjects, academically and socially, because of the what it does, the learning of music and, and how it works in the brain. Now, there's always been a a bit of a correlation between music and mathematics, but it now is accepted that it helps in any academic achievement. So, I mean, all, all private schools have music teachers, but unfortunately in our public system, music is, isn't regarded as important. So over 70% of the public schools do not have a music teacher anymore. They don't have PE teachers either, a lot of them. But pretty retrograde if they're not using their brain or their bodies, but there is guaranteed research that music is, it's a no-brainer in terms of if you want to have a, develop a child, teach them music. They don't have to become musicians. They might even give it up after a few years. But the process of learning and all the things it does, imagination, like I'm saying, and the creativity of it, the teamwork, the discipline, the self-esteem, when you, we put them on stage and they sing, I've had young kids who... Little school, I've had them on the state theatre singing with me and it's just magic and autistic children. People say, oh, you can't possibly risk or oh, they've been beautiful. We get them on stage, They're wonderful, great experience for them. So it's um, really a no-brainer in terms of what it can do for the brain, what it can do in terms of solace, comfort, joy. And, uh, you know, we're worried about all the mental health that's going on and with good reason because kids are inundated with you know, bad news. I wouldn't let kids watch the news, but, I mean, the suicide problem. People give up because they've lost hope. So you've got to give them hope and joy. So they're the two little words that people say, you know, when sometimes you get government departments saying, well, what's the long-term benefit? What's three years, five years, seven years? I say, well, that's it. Hard to always. We've got great stories of people who started in kindergarten now going tertiary education. But I said, hey, if we give them those two things... For a period of time, that's significant. It's not like, oh, they were happy. They're very profound things that humans need. They absolutely need hope and they absolutely need joy. Yeah. But without, without both of those things, what, what are we? What are we? Yeah. Just a moment away from Don Spencer to 
just say, hey, thanks for listening, <laughs> because I do have to keep the lights on here, and occasionally you're going to hear an ad on my show. So if you do hear an ad, thanks heaps. I appreciate it. If you don't hear an ad, we're going to get back and have our chat with Dom. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Just to go back a bit, as, and it does kind of go back to what we spoke about earlier, mm-hmm. that would, if you say to a parent, this is why music is important because it is... Learning a musical instrument, you're, you're using your hands, you're using your brain, you're often thinking about two separate things at the same time. Mm. So you're thinking, you're singing one melody while playing another with your hands. Yep. It's you're, you're, you're making your body do, it's a pretty tricky coordination thing to do. But yep. by doing that, you're writing neural pathways that then allow multitasking, yes. which then later mm. in life, when you're in your job in your 20s, you've now got these super highways that have been built in your brain when you're a kid that can do two separate things at the same time. That's right. But that, that got put there when you were a little when you're a little boy or girl. Yeah. And this is why it's so important, right? It is. Right. It is. Absolutely. You know, you're working out how this chord sequence works and what's that? But you've got to think those things through. And so it does give you that chance that you learn how to think outside the square. You learn how to, as you said, multitask. And once you learn how to do it, that also gives you that, hey, I could learn. I worked that out. So you can work other things out. Yeah. I can play this guitar, I can play this piano, I can do one yep. thing with my right hand, one thing with my left hand. Mm. So I now, I know when I'm confronted with a task, I, I may not know how to do it. It's like, well, I figured that out. Mm. I can figure this out. I can pilot a ship to Jakarta. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, you know, that's what it all comes back to, Don. Yeah, it is. Yeah, mate, it does. Understand what you've done and give yourself credit for it and go, you know what, I figured that out. I could figure this out. And that's what an extraordinary gift to give to a kid. I, my, my eldest, she's a dancer. And, um, you know, watching her go from I don't know these steps to now I'm going to teach you because I know them perfectly. She's never confronted by new choreography because she Mm. knows, well, I've figured it out before. I know know what it's like. I just start Mm. and then a couple of runs, a couple of runs, a couple of runs, and there it is. Yeah, the same thing. And, of course, Lancey's not much fun without music. So no, well, it's precisely. <laughs> so precisely. that's all music is that little. Yeah, it is well, definitely. I mean, all of the arts are very important for development and everything. Mm. I mean, art reflects life. So I don't like to see any of them ignored, but it's just that music is the most, it's the one that affects everyone. It's I've, hard to find anybody who doesn't like music. Yeah. I, I've got to say I'm a bit taken aback when you said that there are schools without 
um, music teachers and PE teachers. That strikes me as a failing, a failing of our young people and a failing of developing them as, as full humans. It is a failing. It's a definite failing. And we've had enough talks with the government. And way back when uh, uh, Dr. Brendan Nelson, wonderful man, was education minister, he commissioned a book on music in schools. And it was 70% of the schools, 72%, I think it was, of schools did not have a specialised music teacher. And Queensland's good, but the rest of the states are just all over. You know, they, they don't have a concentrated program and we've been trying to get that all the time. And we, as I said, we work on all, only with disadvantaged kids who we feel need most. But I never fail to say when I'm talking to powers that be in music education or people we have to deal with, it should be in every school. When did music disappear? Every school used to have a piano, had a music teacher. When I was a kid, I know I'm ageing myself, but what the hell? But uh, now they know. So for if you're a parent and your kid goes to a school that doesn't have a music teacher, yeah. what kind of things you need at home for your kids if they don't have that music support at school to help them learn? Well, ideally, obviously, they, they would be playing music, but they can hopefully, if they can afford it, get some music lessons. Yeah. I mean, that would be... The, the short, quick answer is to get your kid to learn a musical instrument. Yeah. It'd be good for them. <laughs> on, a, on, a, uh, on a sliding scale of, I don't know, drums, which is just like... Rhythm. There we go. I'm yeah. now playing drums. Yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> so from drums to, I don't know, let's say contrabassoon, something very, very difficult. What's kind of like an entry level, what are some entry level instruments that kids can kind of access? Uh, well, it depends on the child and depends on what it is, but piano is the first choice you'd think, but then a lot of people don't have pianos anymore. They, it's an expensive thing to, to have in your house, yeah. But there are keyboards that are cheap. It's true. Get, guitar, obviously, or people can go violin. I mean, there's lots of instruments that, you know, if they can afford it, we worry, as I said, we worry about the people who can't afford it. And yeah. We provide all the instruments and teachers and on a permanent basis, not just, we don't do workshops. We go in... Permanently, like for schools, we've been at some schools for 10, 11 years and and we provide all the music instruments and the teachers on a weekly basis minimum and uh, I would urge everybody to try and get their child to learn a musical instrument. At what age? Or do dance classes, get yeah. them involved in uh, some art-related What activity. age is a good age to start? Well, it depends on the child. You're a little prodigy to start playing away at five or six. But you can't start them too young, but six or seven. Yeah. But make it light. Not, it's got to, you've got to get the right uh, approach because the old-fashioned way of teaching music way back was to bore people to death for two years with scales and then they'd get sick of it and that was the end of it. So the idea is to give them some goals, quick goals where they are actually playing something very soon, no matter how simple it is, so that they're actually playing something or singing something uh, and not have to go through some gruelling, you know, course of yeah. scales. And I mean, they're important to become a real great, a great musician, don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying young kids don't. Don't scare them off with heavy stuff, you know. Yeah, scales are for fish when you're that old. <laughs> yeah. That's really all you need. Yeah, I know. Yeah, man. I was singing just a circle of fifths for Wolfie the other day. I make up songs all the time when I'm, you know, changing yeah. his nappy. I, I sing to him 
I improvise songs. Every time I'm changing his nappy, I sing a song about it. That's a good it's thing never the do. same song twice. That's a good thing to do. That's a great thing. <laughs> I used to do it and I still do it. I've got a goddaughter who's seven. It's just wonderful. But she'll say, read a book and I'll start singing it. And she gets hysterically laughing at it, you know, because whatever the words are, I just make up a tune to it. Oh, that's a great way to do it. So when it's story time, yeah. rather than read the story, sing the story. Yeah. Just make it up, you know. That's perfect. Yeah. There was a guy walking down the street and he saw an elephant. There was a guy walking down the street and he saw an elephant. You know, it just muck around. And what to the elephant? You know, it just yeah. it doesn't, doesn't have to be good. <laughs> it doesn't, no. It doesn't have it's... to scan or just put a musical twist it. So I, uh, I like doing that. That's so great. Yeah. You don't strike me as the kind of guy that's ever going to stop, Don. Oh, no, no. I, I'm never going to stop. Well, something will stop me one day, but I'm not <laughs> going to stop a moment for listen, no. No. Yeah. I could never stop music. Uh, it's just it's in me. It's what I, there's not a day goes by I don't. I'll go out to dinner, I'll do whatever. I come home, I'll play the piano for half an hour or the guitar or something. And, and I'm not the greatest musician in the world, but I'm good enough to enjoy it. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, I tell people who say they can't sing or people who say I can't play very well, I said, look, you just got to relate it to golf. There are a lot of people play golf who are hopeless, but they probably enjoy it more than the pros because it's fun. So look at music the same way. You don't have to be a virtuoso. If you can play something and master some simple song or just sing, it doesn't matter how well you can sing. And I've met a lot of people over my life, adults included, who won't sing. Why? Oh, when I went to school, they're picking the choir and they say, no, you're not in the choir, you can't sing. And they've taken it so profoundly, you have to say, no, that's not fair. Never say that. We invite everybody to sing. If they can sing or not, they're in the choir. Because it's a joy, no matter how well you sing it, you know, it's a matter of just good for you. That's why people sing in the shower and sing when they're happy and... Play music when they're sad. It's comfort. <laughs> man, I could talk to you all day, Don. I'm so grateful we got to do this. I'm so grateful we had a chance to chat, man. It's been a while coming. It's been a while. It's so lovely to see you again, mate. Yeah, really, man. Really good. And I've enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Thanks, brother. That was Don Spencer. What a guy. What an absolute guy. I, we didn't even get to it, but Don played hockey, field hockey for Kenya. Uh, what else has he done? He's... <laughs> He played rugby in Africa. He played first grade cricket and squash. And he's a, a champion table tennis player. Like, there's not much the guy can't do. He's an incredible cat. And the work that ACMF does is just fantastic. If there are young people in your lives, get them onto the uh, songwriting competition, the ACMF songwriting competition. And if you feel like supporting their work, acmf.com.au. So great I could finally bring that conversation to you. Long overdue, and I'm, and I'm grateful, personally grateful, for a bit of a reminder of how important music is. And I sing Wolfie the same songs when I'm putting him to bed every night. And just this last two weeks or so, he started to care for his little bunny. So Bunny just came with him everywhere, but now he's caring for Bunny. Like, he insists on putting a nappy on Bunny, and he, he puts Bunny to sleep. And when he puts Bunny to sleep, he sings the song that I sing to him, but he changes Wolfie to Bunny. So Don's right. <laughs> It's amazing. I hope that conversation brought some value to you and hopefully brings some more music to your life and the life of your family and other young people around you. 
Have a great week. I'll see you Friday. Until we... Oh, thank you so much to Rachel for helping me make the show. And thanks to Andy for helping me make the show. Rachel Barrett, my executive producer. Andy Marr, my audio producer. And uh, Bree Steele on research. You're all awesome. You fantastic humans. And you're li- awesome for listening. So thanks. Until we speak Friday. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.